Hello, and welcome to DeFi Discussions, where we take deep dives in the people around the space, from Bitcoin maxis to the people who think Ethereum will eventually flip Bitcoin. We want to talk to everyone who helps make this space great. We want to learn from other people's mistakes and redefine the definition of insanity. Crypto space changed my life, and I just want to discuss it with like-minded people. We want to do the, these lives raw, uncut, with the community in the comments. So without further ado, let's start the show. Niblets, hey, what's shit, up, bud? Shit. How you doing? Good, man. Good. Excellent. What do you think about this pump? Excellent. Um, try not to jinx it. Just, just don't, don't <laughs> hold on and hoping not to jinx it. Uh, but no, it's, 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 it's a hard thing to just to, to figure out, right? You know, in in retrospect, it's always easy to say, oh, you know, I should have, should have sold, should have sold, should have sold the, sold the rise. I mean, like Joel say that all the time. You know, sell on the way up. All right, but yeah. how far is the way up? Like, are you going to be selling out only ten percent of the way up? Um, you know, these are this is really hard to tell. Um, you know, hold on or 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 try to take profits. So, gosh, I don't or know. On the other side of that, like, do we keep buying? Is it or, you know, well, like how high can this thing go? Seriously, I mean, you look at you look at the charts and you look at some of the big pumps. They they will often be very dramatic. They'll come out of nowhere. Yeah. They'll come after a long lag and they'll ride a long way. So. Yeah. You know, like, what do you, what do you do? Like, that's, that's the, that's the, the that's the hard question here, right? You know, exactly. Yeah. It, you can, you can hear people say, you know, certain strategies, but how do you know this is the moment? Um, exactly. All that strategy, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, Chizzy, what, what has kept it so flat? I mean, when you zoom out, what has kept it that flat for that long? And what has changed so that it's not that flat? Well, in my opinion, it's, it was the, it was the the, the uh, Terra Luna. Well, it was the Fed raising rates. Like the, the in the end of the day, the, the Fed controls all markets. They they decide if, if they want they want to go up or go down by keeping the rates as low as they did last year to make you know to make everything everything skyrocket. I mean, I think the S and P five hundred hit all new like all new high like every week for it had to be like you know a few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so what do you think? I mean. Do you think that 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 what we're looking at right now, do you think that's yeah, you're right. You know, it's dangerous to fight the Fed. But do you think that's structural, meaning that has been a reflection of Fed behavior? Or do you think that's a reflection of the psychology related to Fed behavior? And psychology always finds a way to get used to whatever the new normal is. You know, so are are we seeing psychology or are we seeing actual economics driving that um driving that that chart i um i i I don't i don't really know um like psychology i think people are just we're just tired of just waiting around sure you know so so i think that was a big part of it i mean from the turn i mean obviously from going back to this time last year when everyone wasn't sure if the bull run was still on or it was off and where the bear market was started and the four-year cycle is really something that I really look into and the four year cycle, it's almost identical to the 2018 cycle, like the way it came down from from the highs until kind of where we're at right now. So according to the 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 four year cycle, the bottom was November. And I think a lot of people, the people who buy into that were the people that were buying in November and December and are kind of reaping the benefits of that now. But the, the fact that whether or not they sell like going into this pump, are they happy with this? 20, 30 percent 
pumps on on some of these altcoins, or or are they are they happy with this? And th that's kind of my question. Or are they just getting ready for the 2024 2025 bull run? Well, yeah. So if you, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the co the comparison with with 2018. So in and that period, like we didn't. I don't recall us having the same series of systemic shocks that we had that we've had so far right like i mean yeah. you know but we got terra collapsing we've yep. got 3ac we've got you know sam etc yep. etc and these are all major, yeah, these are major shocks so then that makes me wonder you know how much of this is money that has been sitting on the sidelines waiting for the storms to pass before coming in which wasn't the same dynamic we had back in, you know, people weren't fleeing specific um, catastrophes. They weren't, they weren't fleeing the yeah. bad news. Um, but this time it feels like, you know, the bad news started with Terra and we just had story after story after story. And so the prudent money was just like, oh, let's just wait this out and see what's going Again, I'm just purely speculating here because I'm just yeah. wondering what's, what's really happening. Um, so yeah, is this money coming back in, you know, people are looking around like, okay, you know, it feels like it's it's safe to come back out, or is this you know is this institutional money that's like all right you know we also looked at the same charts and came to the same conclusions yep. we did, and so this is the time to come back in, or is this new money that you yep. know wasn't as scared off by by the shocks? I just I've got yeah. all questions but no answers. Well, like being being in business, wouldn't like um some budgets start in January first? Wouldn't like some of these big hedge funds like have a big budget coming, maybe coming into this year who are just like, okay, we got to make money on our money. Uh, we, we have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to make money. Let's, let's pump this market and potentially call some short squeezes. And that's some easy money going into the beginning of the year. Yeah. Could, I mean, I, this is something I, I don't know about, you know, where, where do, do all of their fiscal years all sort of line up? So these things happen in a similar cadence, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just yeah. don't, but it's, it's a, it's a valid question. You know, is that what's behind? Cause this is such like, even if you just squint and look at that, look at the chart, I mean, this is really an unusual extended, relatively flat phase with, yep. you know, just sharp peaks on either side of it. And, yeah. um, you know, it's 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 just really unusual. Yeah, yeah. So, and if 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 we look into here as well, like I was looking into here earlier, and like if once we get get past this um twenty one four number, if that's direction that we're going, there there's really nothing up here that could really make make us really like stop until twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand could be realistically in a few weeks, like before the the Fed the Fed meeting February second. Like that's without a doubt a possibility. Yeah, I mean, and, and that you know, gosh, so many, so many questions keep coming up. Like you know, yeah. how do you how do you play that right? Do you play that yeah. looking forward, thinking, all right, there's really nothing structural in the way, and so this really is a reflection of psychology. And so what we want to do is we want to get in, stay in, and then you know, release some of that before before the Fed meeting, just in case, you know, sort of ride up and then take and then hop off yeah. before that Fed meeting. Or, you know, <laughs> is, is this is this, you know, getting on the rocket ship before it uh, before it really takes off? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm still nervous. Um, yeah. th this market's given us a lot of a lot of um, cause to be concerned about pumps um it yeah. it's been taking them back um so so what, what what do you think like the fed the fed's gonna do all right so we had three months of decaying um inflation we went from 
nine percent in uh, October to seven percent in uh, November to six point five percent in December. And obviously, with with Christmas and everything, people were still spending in December. But I think January, people really start cutting their budgets. I mean, I, I've done it as well. We spent a lot in December. We're really slowing down on spending. And that, I mean, we're talking like the average person. So I think the average person is really what pushes up inflation. Like, do we see a huge decline in January? And maybe the Fed really has to look into that into in in the February in the February or the March meeting. Well, it seems to be the Fed. Okay, so you know, I I, I don't spend all day every day um, watching the Fed as as many people do. Many people have a full time job, do nothing but Fed watching. But it yeah. does it does seem to be that they. Um, their gears move very, they have a lot of inertia. So once they start moving in a direction, they keep moving in that direction long past that direction is helpful anymore. And then yes. they course correcting, come back slowly. So, yeah. so there are, so right now I would, I would guess based on that, even if inflation came out flat, if it, it annualized inflation, even if it came out flat, I think the fed, because they're, momentum and their inertia is that they're going to raise again for the next few for the next few cycles they're probably yeah. going to raise again now 25 50 probably 25 i suspect they're probably going to continue going uh, 25s um again probably just because not that yeah. i have any insight but just because of inertia and their past behavior with their inertia even if they decide yeah. it's time to change they still take a few cycles to get around to uh reacting to the macro um, yeah. reaction to their last, you know, their last series of, 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 uh, of decisions. So I, I, I just, I, I don't see huge change in, in what they're doing, not for a couple. So you're more. saying either 0.25 or a five, you don't, you don't see a pause at all. I, I highly doubt, I really highly doubt. Yeah. It seems like they're the kind of, it's like, if they were a person, they just seem to get really emotionally involved in a decision and they don't change it until it turns out to be, you know, the wrong decision and they have to deal with the, yeah. you know, they only change once it's broken something, they have to fix it. So yeah. uh, I suspect it'll probably be probably another another two fives another two five for a two fives, yeah, yeah yeah and you know and obviously you know when we when we when we look at you know the Fed rate and Fed decisions you know how that's impacted how much money's come into and out of the space, um, God it's hard to deny you know the causal connection there you know you you, you can come up with all kinds of narratives and scenarios about oh you know people are doing this and people are doing that, easy money. Yeah. Um, easy money tends to flow into into the space. So, um, what, yeah. like on the other on the other side of that, like people's like demeanors, especially with um, a lot of people who get who get money back from doing their taxes. Does we see some of that money kind of coming into the markets a little bit? And on on that note too, do people just start thinking, hey, like I don't care, I'm just going to keep buying because I know the the Bitcoin having is May of 2024, and we're only you know 13 14 months to that and the people who've done that in the past the people who did it in the 2019 um end of that that bear market those people got really 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 good deals i mean we're talking six seven thousand dollar bitcoin i mean you could have got that for like six seven months if you were dollar cost averaging into that you you got you got very happy especially if you were buying alts in, uh, yeah. in 16 months later and 16 months it, it's it flies by like it, it i mean 16 months ago was we we're you know we were in the, in the in the bull market in the beginnings of the bull market. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, so what do you think? Like when you when you look back at, at some of the stuff, like you, you know, the, the correlations between the price of Bitcoin and the price of alts. You know, yeah. Again, I don't live I don't live in in these charts, 
quite as close. I'm not saying you live there either, but not as yeah. they don't look quite as closely as you do. But you know, it seems to be that you know the the shape of the Bitcoin curves. Yeah, the alts follow, and so you know, in this case, if 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 what you're saying, if the the proposition you're you're, you're putting out there is correct, that this feels like it's going to follow a 2018 or 2018 19 uh, pattern again. Okay, great. Is there something in the price of Bitcoin we'll see that may confirm or or or, or deny your hypothesis that we then might yeah. act on alts shortly thereafter? Like, what do you think? What do you, what are you looking for from Bitcoin that might suggest what to what to do with the other other coins, other tokens? I'm thinking if if we can get back to to thirty thousand by May, which is exactly one year from the having. Then I think I think the alts really start taking off. I, I don't think confirmation will really hit until May, but it, you can see some of these these um these like uh the, like bottom coins that are, have really hit ninety nine percent. I'm talking like the Solanas, the the um the Moonbeams, the Moon Rivers, over like the um the Atoms and stuff. You can really see some of those, especially the ones that shoot show showed a lot of strength in this uh in this bear market. I mean I think Atom hit six dollars and then went all the way up to fourteen in the bear market. So like I think some of those coins could really take off. I mean, especially especially the um the ones who have actually have real yield, meaning the yeah. uh the the DYDX, the um the GNSs, the gain the gains network, the the ones who actually show real yield and not are just these these you know how Sean from uh, DeFi Lunch would say like, do it, where's the yield coming from? If it, yeah. if you don't know where it's coming from, you are the yield. I don't mean those tokens, but I'm really talking about the ones people see that actually have real world use case those tokens could really take off and then when as we get closer to the having you can see some of these these um these other i guess you could say like ponzi's i guess you could say could start yeah. taking off but i think may like may june july this summer we could see a little bit of of a of a pump getting ready for that and then like a dip going into the end of the year so, so do you see the, the price of a lot of these alts, and not like the the more the more Ponzi-ish alts, but uh, yeah. do, you, do you see the behavior of the alts still closely tracking the price behavior of Bitcoin, or do you see as they as their value proposition and, and, and functionalities diverge a little bit, and they try to offer new or different things in maybe different slightly different ways? Do you see the price action and price trends sort of separating from each other, or do you see them still sort of continuing? Uh, in, in close lockstep with each other over time. See, um, I feel like the altcoins, the newer altcoins, kind of like the, the the ones that we were going to talk about later with the, the the shallow left left hand of the chart, the yeah. ones that really don't have a lot of a lot of details, like kind of like um, for like like Moon River or something, something that shot, you know, we're talking shot all the way up to about you know five hundred six hundred dollars in in the bull run and now right now you can get it for seven dollars and fifty cents i see the i see this token being probably closer to about a hundred bucks going into the end of the year just just because of the sake that people are saying hey this could be potentially a 30 40x yeah you know yes. like this, like i i want to i want to just put my money in something and and these these are layer one blockchains like these are stuff that um, like things are being built right now that we have no idea what's going to pop. Like something could come out on one of these layer one blockchains and um, and really take off something with real real world use case on like something like 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 Hive Mapper kind of on Solana. Like Solana could really take off and Hive Mapper could be really one of those use cases that really show you, hey, yeah, there's a lot of the um the, the big monies out of it, but this shows real world use case where normal people are 
are doing Uber and doing DoorDash and driving around and earning extra coins and earning co- extra money and just maybe even just dumping those coins. But at the same time, other people are going to be like grabbing them because that could be the helium of yeah. the next cycle. And people yeah. are going to be looking for that next helium, that next the next coin that that 100 X is from from right now, potentially. So so then if I read a little further, if I, you know, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, yeah. then it, it sounds like you know, at least in the context of, of the L1s. It sounds like as the L1s differentiate themselves in terms of value proposition from, you know, the mothership Bitcoin. Yeah. Does it seem fair that their price curves, the behavior of the price curves then start to diverge? So just because Bitcoin goes up doesn't mean the others go up or doesn't mean they go up in the same way. Or when we're looking at the shapes of the curves and the patterns, they will also start to differentiate. Or do you still see the fact that that? Bitcoin is so dominant, not just in terms of the market share, but also in terms of the psychology of the investment community, that their investing behavior follows Bitcoin regardless of what what L1s um, they're investing. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to get a sense so, of what the shapes of the of the charts yeah. relative. So I, I think right now, Bitcoin is the risk on risk off number. If Bitcoin yeah. goes up, everyone's like risk on. Bitcoin goes yeah. down, Bitcoin goes down, everything, everyone goes risk off. But you can, on, on a lot of these chains, like I, I do, I do a lot of research in, in the, a lot of these chains, and a lot of them are just kind of ghost chains. I mean, they got some NFT stuff going on them. They got a lot of, um, they got some DeFi stuff, mainly Uniswap um, forks, a compound forks, a lot of forks from the last cycle. But I think a lot of this stuff was built in the bear market the last time. And like, so my thinking right now is, is there's going to be stuff built that's building right now. Like as we're speaking, that is because all, all these, all these big players, they're all working on, on these, um, these L1s. Now they're going to be working on these dApps that are going on top of these L1s. Yep. And some of, some of this stuff going in could be, it, it could be it's like real world type applications that, Real, real world people, normal people, not people like me who are just using these blockchains just just because I'm crazy and I, I enjoy it. But f- for real world use cases of of you know stuff like Stepin, stuff like Hive Mapper, stuff like Helium, where um, in the future a lot like uh, on the DeFi launch they were talking about how a, a lot of jobs are going to be taken away from 3D printers, from um, uh, AI, and all this. So if if crypto can create money for people to just share maybe sharing their internet connection or or sharing their data and making real real money potentially you know thirty forty thousand dollars a year for for some jobs and some you know some small world country um people could really like benefit from 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 that so i see what this stuff that's going to be built right now is going to explode especially the guys who made some of these l1s are so amazing those same people are working on these dApps yeah. And we're 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 going to see some explosiveness. We're going to see some coins that are come out in like the end of this year, December, and a year later be you know 100, 200 X's. Now, when you when you say that, do you see that? Are you looking primarily or exclusively at L ones, or are you looking beyond just the L ones? When you, when you I mean, that's a pretty dramatic uh, uh, prognostication. So you know, is this just L ones, or are we talking about? So large? I'm looking for for what's being built on top of the L ones. Uh, I'm looking for that next big dap. I think I think the L1s were last cycles big, yeah. like the the Maddox, which was a layer two, but it technically, you know, kind of like Ethereum's kind of like a layer zero for for those coins, the Optimism, the Arbitrum, the yeah. Matic. But still, like the other the other layer ones, 
I, I think the layer I, I wouldn't really be investing big in the layer ones. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be investing in in them now, but in around December, January, I'm really gonna find those brand new um, decentralized applications and trying to figure out which one has the best use cases for when when the tourists come back into the space and start using for you know for fun like the that the 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 decentralized applications being built on the layer ones i think will be the next big thing and also community coins because i think i think do, i think the dojos of the world the shibas of the world they're no, they're no longer meme coins i really believe that they're community coins now and so a community is going to pump either they're going to pump these coins because they feel a part of something. So for me, the next big coins are community coins and and decentralized applications being built on top of these other ones. Okay, that's that's super interesting because those sound like they're very two almost diametrically opposed contexts, right? Where you you have yeah. one where and this is I'm I'm glad you brought this up. You know, we're start, starting to uh, starting to sell the next bit, the shallow left hand. Um, yeah projects that have a shallow left hand, a shallow left hand being when you look at the chart, it either doesn't exist or the left hand side of it is very, very small. And those seem to, as you were, de as you were describing, the value yeah. there is in new utility, new functionality, doing new exactly. things. Exactly. Yep. Where community coins may in fact be the exact opposite, meaning they've been around long enough. Doge mm -hmm. has been around. I mean, you know, if we talk about this in terms of the space, Doge is an old guy in this space. And yeah, so, 2013, I think, 2012. So, you, so in order to sort of cultivate that community, that's not something that just pops the next day. So yeah. it's interesting you mentioned them because we, you know, there's these two contexts. One is very new, strict utility, and the other one actually doesn't care about utility, yeah. and is probably benefiting from being having been around for a long time, and it's just interesting for other reasons. And they're able to sort of develop and build that community around them. Now, speaking of utility, I want to bring this back to the question I asked you earlier yeah. uh, in terms of price curves. So do you think then, you know, again, if, if we look at past prices, you know, the price curves from Bitcoin, you can almost copy paste them across all yeah. man, most any given token. You're pretty much going to the copy paste the same price curve. Regardless of what the numbers are, the curve is roughly, roughly similar. So do you see that breaking if and only if unique utility comes out for that other project? And it's at the point of releasing that unique utility that that's when that new coin can or new token can break with um, with the Bitcoin curve. Yeah, um, I, I still think going in, we're going to see the same thing again. We're going to see Bitcoin pop first, yep. followed by Ethereum. Followed by the 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 high um the high level um layer ones, followed by the um the applications on top of them, followed by the community coins. I think it'll just and then that that money will kind of roll back into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, layer ones, community coins. Yeah. And then your your Ponzi's at the end. That money's yeah, just yeah, going to yeah. flow from one taking profit from Bitcoin, taking profit, putting in Ethereum, taking profit from Ethereum. It's just just kind of how we just saw it and. Yeah. And then that replaying back into Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin goes up, goes down. And then we have alt season for a little while. And then that returns to Bitcoin. And then that's why the pumps just continue, continue. And that's what we saw all the way up to 69,000. Now, do you, do you see that as sort of a structural, a permanent kind of structural dynamic? Or is it more like training wheels? Like it's just going to be like that for now until it becomes much more common for tokens to deliver unique 
value or unique utility? Is this something we outgrow, or do you think this that cycle you described is is sort of a permanent feature of, of the space? I I think it's a permanent. I don't think it's a permanent feature. I think it's a temporary feature yeah. until it's broken. Gotcha. Once it's it's broken. Once just like you know, once something just changes. And I think like you kind of go with the same data. You like just like what how I feel with the Bitcoin four year cycle. I believe the the bottom was November, and this starts the beginning of the next bull run, the very very beginning of the next bull run. And I feel like the same thing with that in the bull run, until it's broken, my theory will stay. My investing strategy will stay the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that 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 feels that. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, so you know, speaking of your your investment strategy, I mean, like, yeah. How, how, I'm just trying to think of think about how to ask this. Um, how much is, how much of your investment strategy so far has been reacting to the system shocks that have come through? You know, the three ACs, the Terra Lunas, yeah. the um, uh, the FTXs, obviously all the big ones that we're all aware of. You know, how much of your strategy has been affected by that versus you know one of the reasons for a strategy is to ride through so you're not reacting to those sorts of things yeah. but it's not hard to not react to such big shocks how how yeah. how how have you adhered to your strategy um throughout so I, I was for the last cycle i i was following and i got this from from bitboy um kind of a, a shame to say that but i did he he said he called that no last november was was the top so and i i didn't believe it at first i was like no i don't think so so i, I kept in investing weekly kept investing weekly right around last february probably when uh i think R russia um kind of went in ukraine and i really didn't know what was going on and my alts were already down probably 30 40 percent i started going uh i, I started at, like putting it into bitcoin and just I, I transferred all my alts into bitcoin and so i was sitting on 100 bitcoin i didn't go to cash which was probably one of my biggest mistakes and my biggest learning curve i i believe because i thought that when the, the with the inflation rising because it was rising every month over month every month from december on uh, i thought bitcoin was going to be the gold and that bitcoin was going to actually do better in in an inflationary environment than any any anything else and i i thought the the, the altcoins were still going to go into the bear cycle but i thought bitcoin was going to avoid it maybe take a 40 percent loss a 30 yeah, percent yeah. loss and i was something i was comfortable holding till the next cycle but i was not expecting this 85 percent loss so yeah. right around february march and i'm so glad i did because i would have got destroyed if not i really got put everything in, into bitcoin and then so i waited and waited and waited and then again like I, the, the the four year the four year strategy in November right right after FTX and I remember it's funny because I remember I heard an interview with Kevin O'Leary and he said one huge exchange needs to go down one big player that's highly leveraged needs to go down for the bear market to be over and I can find a clip uh, for for next week if, uh, if so but he said yeah. that and it turns out it's funny because it was the one that he was so wrapped up in FTX <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> so when when be careful what you wish for, Kevin. Right? That's what he said. And I can find the clip. He said one big over-leveraged person needs to fall before this bull market is over, the bear market is over. Yeah. And that turned out to be FTX. So once that happened, right around the 27th, probably like the 24th, 27th, right around Thanksgiving, I started taking my uh, my Bitcoin and converting it back into alts. So right now I'm I'm probably sitting on about probably about sixty percent alts and forty percent Bitcoin, and I'm probably going to go hundred percent alts going into the next bull cycle. Wow, wow. Um, 
so okay so speaking of speaking of bitcoin i mean you mentioned inflation like did did you did you reallocate from the alts into bitcoin because you believed that bitcoin you know the story bitcoin the story is that bitcoin you know it's one of its benefits is it's a it's an inflation hedge did you yes. go did you do that because you believe that that was the case or did you see some other dynamic that you were um responding to so going if going from alts to bitcoin or going from yeah um, yeah from going bitcoin from alts to bitcoin is yeah. that, that because you were so, trying to hedge against inflation or was there some other reason yes that was 100 percent. so back so, when i first got into crypto um the, the first thing the first time I, I actually heard the word bitcoin was uh august 8th 2020 and that was because anthony pompliano came on the rich dad poor dad podcast and that's when i you know uh he was he was talking about like everything that 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 really needed to like with inflation and growing and and everything like like that so yes to answer your question i i honestly thought that bitcoin was a hedge against inflation but i, I was i was very wrong <laughs> yes yes I, I think i think yeah i agree i think i think you're wrong that it's that it's a hedge against inflation however when you have did you, have you looked at your numbers to see if that was still the right move meaning you know com, relative you know th things it's hard to call something in an absolute sense but maybe calling it relatively so relative to staying in alts yeah even though it may not have been good as going into like, you know, SDC, USDT or, or, or fiat, yeah. you know, was it still, did it turn out that it was still a better move to make going into Bitcoin and staying in the alts, even if it wasn't? Yes. Good? Yeah. Okay. Well, Bitcoin went down 80%. Some of the alts are down 95 90, to 99%. Yeah, exactly. So to me, yes, I'm still like it, it, it was the, it was the best strategy with not knowing how Bitcoin was going to react in a, in a macro environment. In a, in a high high rate high risk macro environment so i did not know that i didn't see see that coming as well so. yeah so instead of being a hedge against inflation you know you can almost think about at least in, in your experience it seems like it's more like a, a hedge against collapse on one on the one hand as well as a hedge against a potential upside that's yes. uncertain unpredictable but is likely to be so it's like when you're when you're hedging against either ends of a, of a very wide spectrum it feels yeah. like you know bitcoin perhaps is is the hedge for that not so much against uh inflation yeah all right so let's uh, let's get into our next thing um right now uh we have uh katie um to come on on the podcast so let's let's bring her on right now hello katie welcome hi there how are you guys good how are you uh i'm good i'm very excited to make a guest appearance here Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Katie. All right. Is is that a real plant behind yeah. you? I mean, water? it's barely hanging on, but it, it, it is real. It's That's okay. uh, one of those that kind of grows and grows and grows, and it's now spawned into probably 10 different plants. I think all of my friends have a piece. Very nice. I remember when I was a kid growing up, like, you know, everyone always had a house plant. This just, this only occurred to me a little while ago because all these, um, all these DJ videos that I listen to, for some reason, they all have these like huge, lush, like backgrounds of, of real plants. I'm like, wow, that's weird. Because when I was a kid, you know, we all had house plants, and everybody I knew had house plants. And it's like, I haven't had a living thing in my living area since I was a kid. Like, I should maybe have some house plants and make this feel a little more alive. Like, I've got, I've got, you know, like like hard yeah. and, and brick, but uh, I, need, I, need some, I need some greenery. Katie's what I'm I uh, I barely qualify here. These are all the reject plants that got demoted from elsewhere in the house. So this is my basement office, and they are not loving the new climate down here. Ah, uh, uh, well, 
plant hospital. Yep. Sorry, sorry, Shizzy. I was a uh, little little. Nah, man, that's, that was great. So, um, so Katie, so um, let's get right into it. Let's uh, find out actually who you are. So, um, when you were a kid, uh, what did you be? When what you what did what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, you know, I was messaging with you a little bit on Twitter. I really don't think I have a great answer to this question. Um, <laughs> I I almost was a little bit flavor of the month. I think with uh, what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Um, you know, sort of what my friends were interested in was what I adopted to some degree. I always was like, oh yeah, sure. That's, uh, that sounds good. Science. Great. I don't like science, but I'm sure it's not that hard. Um, but I think the things I, I naturally gravitate gravitated toward were, uh, you know, literature books and, um, history weirdly. Uh, so you'd think in some way that would predetermine me for a career as a historian, but no, apparently that, uh, led me to crypto and instead, you know, I'll put that to work in the, in the way of historical analogies when I can. Um, so I don't think I, I was sort of down a particular track in any way, certainly when I was a kid, but I was quirky and I had a kind of a, an obsession with reading. So if anything, I guess that maybe qualified me for a communications field here. <laughs> All right. So, um, so let's skip through a little bit. So in high school, like what, what was your dream job? Um, so in high school, I uh, sort of had an interest in marketing or math, um, okay. which seemed like very different fields to me. But uh, I, for some reason, it just was, was good at math. And that was helpful to me, mostly in the sense that it got me um, opportunities in the way of, of academic scholarships that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Uh, which is funny because then, of course, I use those scholarships to not pursue a math degree. Um, but so, yeah, in high school, I kind of just thought, you know, business seems interesting. Marketing seems appealing. Marketing and advertising seem fun. Um, and then, you know, the thing that I was sort of naturally good at was math. So it's like, I'll give that a try. And when I um, actually did enroll in, in college, I went to Bentley University here in Massachusetts. Um, I sort of checked uh, both math and, and marketing as, as my interests. And I think it was a glitch when I was enrolled, but they just enrolled me in a marketing degree. Uh, and so I just stayed in the program and never modified it. I figured, you know, yeah, it's probably fine. I don't know if I want to be an actuary anyway. So it was sort of uh, picked for me and I uh, let it happen. That's awesome. All right. So, um, so, so what, what, what was life like, um, like, during like during college um and towards the end of it was like what was, what was your mindset what was your goals like what, what were you really thinking towards the end of there um so i went i mean I, I i'm guessing you guys probably aren't super familiar with bentley bentley was um it's a business school so everyone who goes to bentley has a, an undergraduate business degree um or or graduate if you enroll in a graduate program but uh you know it's really strong in finance and accounting and so ma marketing and math are both, you know, not sort of the specialties there. Um, but I would say, you know, once I enrolled there, there's sort of like this competition with another school here in Massachusetts named Babson, uh, where Babson is usually the entrepreneurial school and Bentley is sort of the accounting school. And so I always looked at those sorts of dynamics and neither of them really appealed to me. Um, particularly, I kind of had this, this notion in my head that entrepreneurship was not for me. Right. Like I'm not the risk taker. I'm not the person who's going to, um, you know, give a sales pitch and, and sort of chase people down, knock on doors. Um, so I, I sort of ruled that out prematurely, I think. And, uh, you know, looking at 
what I wanted to do after school, I kind of just immersed myself in internships wherever I could. So my approach to, to school was to just always be working um, because I had a tendency to procrastinate. But uh, if you don't have time to procrastinate, you don't procrastinate. So I, um, I, was, I had four internships while I was in school. Uh, and then sort of the last one, I ended up in product marketing. I applied for kind of a product marketing role out of school. And it was at this uh, little startup. And so, um, you know, this, it was a visual effects company. Uh, we were s focused on spinning out into like a consumer facing brand. And this was at the time when kind of Instagram was on the rise. Um, Vine had just come out. Um, people okay. were all doing this Instagram for video kind of concept. And we were trying to find our place in that space. So uh, at that point, I realized that I, I didn't really know what entrepreneurship entailed. And I did, in fact, like it quite a bit. I liked building stuff um, from scratch in sort of every sense of the word. And so I think um, people tend to think of building as reserved for, well, certainly construction, but also software engineering, right? Those are the folks who are actually building blockchains. Um, but I think there's something to be said about you know, building a strategy, building a digital presence, building a brand, building a team. Like there's a lot of components there where, you know, you can help really define what the culture ends up being, what um, sort of uh, your your brand becomes and, and how folks embrace it or, or don't embrace it in some senses. Um, so I think that those things are all really powerful and that's kind of what I fell in love with. And I've uh, really stayed on the startup marketing track ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a quirky little path. <laughs> Everyone in crypto so, has a quirky path to get here. So my, my favorite question to ask anyone is, when was the first time you heard that word, that word Bitcoin? Um, I actually do remember it. I don't know why so many people do. Um, I believe it was in, I'm going to say 2013. Uh, and it, I remember who it was. It was uh, so, someone who had been sort of hired part-time at one of the startups I'd been working at. And he was sort of a distinct, like hipster type character who um, was sort of in on all the fads, all the kind of latest happenings. And I remember him just describing it to me as sort of like an internet currency to which I was like, great. So I've got like stop and shop points at the grocery store. I don't know <laughs> that, that. So like I, I had a very surface level opinion of, of Bitcoin and wasn't sort of intrigued enough to dive deeper at that time. Um, and I, I really don't think I heard about it again in earnest until 2016, I think. Um, and that was someone who was in crypto, the other crypto, cryptography, um, when I was working okay. in a security company. And so he was really trying to get me on Ethereum. Um, and this was post Mt. Gox hack. And so I remember him pitching me on this more secure digital currency that had just gotten hacked. And I'm like... These two concepts don't seem to go together. You're not, you're not yeah. selling me. Um, and that was the make your deal hack, right? I can only assume he must have done really well because I think he dumped, you know, every cent he he could spare into Ethereum at that time. He was extremely bullish, and so I had sort of more of a primer of crypto at that point, but still, you know, didn't get didn't get bitten by the bug. Um, kind of resisted to some degree uh, the crypto space. I didn't actually jump into the crypto space until 2019. Awesome. Um, so, so you, 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 um, you, you, uh, you, you're working for uh, Moonbeam and Moon, Moon River. Can you um, explain exactly kind of what you do? Sure. So I'm the director of marketing at a company called PureStake. PureStake yeah. is uh, sort of the tech team building Moon River and Moonbeam, one of the big contributors today. 
And so for those who are not familiar, um, Moonbeam and Moon River, uh, they're, they're, they have a shared code base, which is why they're sort of um, contributed to by the same engineering team. And so I'll just for simplicity describe Moonbeam, which is um, a chain focused on these cross-chain use cases. And uh, really the approach there has been to kind of focus on three core things. Uh, the first is to arm developers um, with the best cross-chain tools that we can. And so that includes being built on Polkadot, access to something called XCM, which is their cross-chain messaging system, um, but also to work with many different general message passing providers. And so that's um, a type of messaging that allows applications to communicate outside of Polkadot to things like Ethereum and Avalanche and Cosmos. And so, you know, really making sure that we have sort of the best compatibility we can uh, from that perspective has been a goal since the very beginning. Um, Focusing on the best developer experience as a whole is sort of the second key component. And then yeah. the third piece is really sort of the next generation architecture afforded to us by the way that Polkadot was designed. And so for, I'm, I'm assuming most folks who kind of tune in uh, to your show here are at least somewhat familiar with Polkadot, but just to give kind of a, a highlight of the, the things that we enjoy from that. So we're able to kind of build on this modular framework called Substrate and communicate with other substrate chains. And so um, as part of that, we have built-in on-chain governance. We have forkless upgrades. We have um, sort of uh, lots of interoperability built in at the core of what, it, of what we do. And so I think those three things, when combined, you know, you look at, okay, well, what does this mean for non-developers, right? You've described a great developer platform. Um, what we're trying to do is push forward what a DAP is, right? Today, um, in, in almost all use cases, you know, you'll go to a specific chain, you'll need to bridge over tokens, you'll need to interact with sometimes chain-specific wallets, you'll need to sort of mm. um, immerse yourself in the vernacular of that ecosystem, and it can become really intensive. And so what we're trying to do is create a world where applications are a little bit less tribal when, uh, when teams need to deploy. So you might deploy a project to Moonbeam and have other satellite instances and use Moonbeam as sort of the, the center of, of this little ecosystem as your brain of sorts. And so what it would look like to end users, it could be something as simple as like a front end without having to know where you're moving tokens. Imagine locking tokens on Ethereum and being able to, to use that on a different chain without having to move the tokens back and forth because you have just one application interface that allows you to do all of that. Um, so, so basically just using one application and doing multiple things on mm -hmm. on just one application, but your own Cosmos, your own your own Moonbeam, you're potentially on on different polka dots, the Akala and stuff and stuff like Astar, yeah. stuff like that. So basically just doing that on one application and using multiple blockchains is that yeah is that yeah exactly and so it's a little complicated in the sense that we're not building those applications ourselves there's yeah. lots of teams building them on top of us um but we're really focused on enabling that right but um it sounds a little bit radical and far-fetched but when you think about it it's really you know the idea that if you lock something on chain a ethereum whatever you want to call it um awareness that that has been locked is really kind of only on ethereum but if you could have some sort of proof that that happened on other chains and use that information to either, you know, borrow against it or provide some sort of service, um, then that could unlock some really interesting use cases. 
Um, but yeah, really what we're trying to do is, is allow developers to create experiences that hopefully are more friendly for new users. Yeah, and that's basically what we, we and uh, me and him were just talking about. We're basically saying, like, I, I believe that the, the the next big wave will be the DApps. The people who are who are building the layer ones in, inside the the last bull market are probably the same guys building these DApps. These that are going to be the next big thing in the next bull run. Um, have you came across anything like with real world potential? Any DApps that are off, off the top of your head? that are being built on Moon, Moonbeam or Moon River that you can actually I mean, talk about? There's certainly a number of dApps being built. Um, so if for anyone who's interested, there's a website uh, called Downtown Moonbeam. Um, I think the URL is dtmb.xyz. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's certainly like, a I think, 250 projects that have integrations with or deployed to Moonbeam. Um, but when we look at these cross-chain use cases, the ones that come to mind, um, I think, are still in this sort of DeFi space. So Prime Protocol, I know, is one of them. Dam Finance is one of them. Um, really, some of the cross-chain capabilities are also used by Lido, which is uh, live on Moonbeam, but uses yeah. some components of the Polkadot relay chain. Um, there's others. I mean, there's the yeah. Centrifuge uh, team, of course, on a or on um, Polkadot that has sort of um, Moonbeam as as a through way of sorts to kind of access other blockchains as well. So there's certainly a number of teams that have started or started to like dip their toe in the water in terms of uh, really rethinking the way that we interact with uh, these applications, how they're architected. Um, and how that is appearing to users. But when you when you ask about like consumer facing things, I'd say we're still in my mind talking more about DeFi here. Um, but right. I think the the question would be, is DeFi going to be ready to be a mainstream use case versus um, are, are, do we have sort of what you would normally think of as consumer facing applications that are now starting to come to Moonbeam and other cross chain focused um, ecosystems. So I, I, it's a complicated answer. I know there's certainly uh, finance-focused uh, teams that are already sort of well down this path. I think the ones that yeah. I mentioned, Dan and Prime, have been working on this for oh, six to 12 months, somewhere in there. Like a, I think those teams have been at it for some time. Um, but it's it's we haven't yet I think there's still going to be some unlocks uh, in terms of the, the types and variety and um, uh, hopefully some more kind of new use cases that we haven't seen at all before, but you need kind of the first few to, to show you what, what can be done with this technology. Yeah. And those teams were certainly already seeing being very early and very progressive about the way that I'm so, I'm so excited to see what at the end of this year, beginning of next year, what, what these people are, are going to be showing us. Cause some of the, like the, the real world, the, the real world applications could be, I mean, it could be mind blowing. I'm just so excited to see what, what is next. It's so funny to me too, because it, it's easy to take for granted how quickly things move in this space. And we joke about it all the time, right? Like we, we talk about, you know, a, a day or a month or a week in crypto. Um, it's, it's light years in any other industry, it's right? Like it just every, things move so quickly. And so, um, you know, when we really started talking to teams about these cross chain use cases, like they're already, um, I, I can't speak to like their development timelines in particular, but like I, th I think they're really quite approaching their production ready state. Um, so I think once we start to see sort of a trickle of these next gen applications, you know, my hope is that there's a lot more where those came from. 
uh, and that we're able to kind of unlock some really interesting stuff here once you can kind of get a taste of what this would look like. So, yeah. so the applications are interesting, but mm -hmm. I'd like to sort of take a step back behind that and talk a little bit about um, what you see the problems are inherent in silo chains. I mean, every one of these projects is an instance of a solution. Yep. A solution to what? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the problem behind siloing chains that um, makes these solutions matter in a way. So we get a sense of, you know, why any of this really matters. Yeah, I would say, I mean, there's a couple of things. There's um, continued demand for alt chains uh, from, what, from what I can see personally, in the sense that um, teams are sort of still continuing to struggle with transaction speed or gas fees or whatever it is. Like there's sort of continued interest in, in alternatives. Um, and yet when you look at efficiency from either it's from TBL or just communication um, or just the, again, back to the user experience, like being able to kind of transact with your tokens where you want, uh, all of those things are now really, really hard. And so what we've seen is there's a lot of applications um, took the multi-chain approach over the last couple of years of redeploying to separate places. Um, and it's really tough to do that. You have sort of spread yourself thin in a lot of cases, depending on how many chains you, you chose to deploy to. Um, but also if you look at sort of the battle for TBL, especially in a market like this, it becomes really tough <laughs> to get kind of enough TBL um, for, for every instance of your application for it to make sense. And so what's really interesting about some of these future use cases, um, and to some degree I'm, I'm theoretical here when I'm describing them, but just to give you some, some character, uh, you know, if you have a token on chain A and then you borrow against it on chain B using kind of the same application and there's sort of awareness between the two, this concept of like TVL per app per chain matters a lot less, right? Like what you're doing on a particular sort of, I mean, back to your, your term silos here, like in a particular silo, it's, it's a really, it's less important where things are locked up and where things move to instead. Um, but it also just decomplicates things in the sense that you don't have to go through this process of, okay, so I have, maybe I have ETH and I need to change it to WETH and I need to figure out what bridge to move it across. And once I get there, I need to figure out what the DEX is on this new chain. And then I need to swap my WETH for whatever the other token is. And if I need to do a pair, then I need to research the pairs that they're promoting or that I find or whatever it is. And so you just or think- Or you need gas for that chain. Yeah, you think about the intensity of that whole process. Um, and so efficiency, I think, at a high level is really what we're gaining here. But you can sort of see how that term applies in, in all sorts of cases, whether it be um, certainly like uh, the capital that it takes to, to do this, but also, um, you know, time and, uh, you know, the number of applications that you're interacting with, all of the above. So, so what's the marketing lead? I'm, I'm curious about... Um, not particularly your market, but um, the market in general. And so, you know, when you talk about marketing, who's your target market and, and audience? I mean, is it is it the development communities? Is it the sort of the business side of different projects? Or at this stage, early stage, is there any distinction between those two uh, groups of groups of people? Um, so right now, I think we're starting to get to a maturity level to dig a little deeper into that. Um, for the last year since Moonbeam launched, it was um, I think some assumptions, right? You, you kind of start out with, you know, your best guess at what your market's going to look like. 
And then as you have time and resources and maturity, you start to define that a little bit more. So we're actually looking at that right now and trying to um, improve a lot of the digital experiences on my side. So that includes website, but also how people navigate through things, where they get information from. Those are all things I'm looking at. And when you start that kind of process, you do really need to take a look at like who it is that's using it. Um, but just to give you sort of a short answer to your question, by and large, our primary audience when we're doing sort of marketing is is that developer team, uh, project team. And that's largely because like, you know, if users are going to come use these applications, there need to be a lot of really good applications on the chain. And so sort of our first priority uh, was intentionally developers. Um, that said, we know that there's people who hold the Glimmer token, right? And the Glimmer token has lots of different properties, but it is a utility token. And it has, of course, value in on-chain governance and staking on the chain to support sort of the, the block production. So that's still an audience of ours. Like that's not something that we can um, ignore, but as the tech team building sort of the technology, our focus is really the tech. Uh, and so as part of that, you know, as a marketing organization, um, that's sort of what we do is, is focus on educating people on the technology and what it can do. And of course, um, working with teams that are deploying to Moonbeam uh, to, to make sure that they have the information they need solve their problems and so forth. It's interesting. So that makes me, that reminds me of, um, you know, going back to like, you know, what a definition of a market is, you know, one definition is, you know, a, a group of people who reference each other for purchasing decisions. Mm -hmm. And in an early situation like this, you may have an audience, but not necessarily a market. So for example, you know, if there's not enough, if there's not a critical mass of, of players, they can't really reference each other for purchasing decisions. And by purchasing, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean buying something with money because you yeah. can buy something with your attention. You can buy something with your, uh, you know, with your, your effort. So, you know, whatever it is you're buying this thing from. So in your case, do you see a market naturally coalescing? Or is this a case where you have to, as the marketing lead, have to start to build the market before you can market to the market? Like, does that even make sense? Like, It, it does. It really does, especially right now where we are. So we have been extremely fortunate in the sense that um, most of the interest from a development perspective does come inbound. Um, so that oh. just generally means like folks, if yep. they want to deploy to Moonbeam, they either do it because it's permissionless mm -hmm. or if they need help, they reach out to us for, um, you know, DevRel resources. We have a documentation site. We have sort of a, a test net that they can deploy to. So a, a great, a deal of the volume has come inbound or through referrals from uh, folks who've been building on the chain or from in investors or from, um, you know, other other teams and sort of this tech ecosystem. But I would also say, you know, it's certainly something that I am cognizant of when I think of a brand. Uh, and part of the reason that I ended up in this space is because I love marketing to technical people um, because they say they hate marketing, but I know that they don't. Uh, they <laughs> That's really, really true. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, when I look at that, um, part of the brand is really part of what always kind of draws me to these sorts of audiences, because if you can create a brand that means something to people, um, you know, you can create this sort of like emotional connection and uh, uh, like enjoyment of the brand, right? Like it means something more than just technology. And so for me, I 
I do think that there should be some sort of outward brand presence that increases over time. Um, but, you know, when I look at timing, I, I think that there's like a special time to do that, depending on um, when you have momentum, when you're starting to get sort of large influx of users, when you're um, really seeing growth, that's the time to sort of, uh, you know, help, help the natural momentum along. And so I would say like for right now, still quite developer centric, um, but in the future, I can just see a benefit for talking about Moonbeam as a whole. And our message would still be very similar in the sense that, you know, we are always talking about the technology of Moonbeam. Um, but of course, like there is sort of a benefit to, to bringing that message broader and bigger and uh, helping yeah. kind of get the word out a little bit on a grander stage. Yeah, so speaking of that, um, is there is there a is there another layer of challenge on top of the fact that you're cross chain and you're not sort of devoted to you know this a silo where you kind of have a lot of internal dynamics or no is it just the fact that they're all developers they're all you know sort of engaged in solving certain kinds of problems and the, these these sort of token silos aren't really uh, aren't really relevant at the level that you're working at trying to reach a market. Um. I'm not sure I have a great answer for that question, but I would say by and large, like our, the, the cross chain approach really just means that, um, things should get easier, but they're going to get a little complicated first, right? Like this technology is very new. And so as it's being defined, there's of course a, a lot to learn when you're talking about messaging between systems and things. And so, uh, as those problems are being solved largely by the teams already, you know, working on these cross chain use cases, um, I think the end result is that things will get easier in the sense that it won't matter as much where your chain is, or sorry, where your, your kind of primary deployment is on which chain it's on. So in that battle, then, um, hopefully there will be, it, we're almost like commoditizing some of those services in some ways, but I think it will become even more important to maintain differentiation, right? So for Moonbeam, something that is is very, very important is to make sure that there's sort of all the chains uh, or sort of all the compatibility that we can from a cross-chain perspective. And so even though you might have deployments on multiple chains, like you still might want, you know, the, the center of those activities to be controlled by some headquarters or, or whatever it is on Moonbeam. Um, so it's a little bit of a complicated answer, but I would say like, the, the dynamics change, but it doesn't kind of entirely eliminate the need to to pick a leader amongst your deployments or to understand benefits and, and disadvantages of different architectures and different styles of deployment in different worlds. It just means that, in my view, I, hopefully we'll be a lot less tribal in the future. It will be a lot less like, you know, Solana is the king of all things or, you know, whatever your chain of, of the day is, it'll yeah. be hopefully um, a little bit more interactive when we look at how developers are using each of these chains that, that's in their purview. So, yeah, yeah so I actually, so the, my question actually is more, was more about reach and market reach. So you raised an interesting point about, you know, tribalism. Now, the, one of the benefits of tribalism is it gives you a much tighter target for your reach. You know, if it was Solana, well, then you kind of mm -hmm. have a better idea of exactly where you're going to go, who you're going to, who you're going to target, who you need to interact with, you know, yeah. which stars to get on board. Whereas if you're going across chain, that's much more diffuse. And I'm guessing, you know, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is from your perspective as marketing lead, 
Are there yeah. unique challenges in the situation going cross-chain that you might not have if you were focused on one community versus all communities? Um, so I think I probably think about the world slightly differently. So even when we're just talking about the things that we're talking about right now, you know, Solana is built in Rust. Rust is um, a programming language that's a little bit more challenging. There's true people in the world who are familiar with it. Uh, Moonbeam supports uh, Solidity, which is the, of course, the dominant smart contract language for Ethereum and EVM style chains. And so there is, I think, an important distinction. Although I would say, from what I've heard anecdotally, I don't know many people uh, in the Solana space, but from what I've heard at trade shows, uh, a lot of people sort of learned Rust or hired a lot of Rust people to get into Solana specifically. So that one, the dynamics might be different there. Um, but by and large, like I look at languages. And so for context, um, before, before Moonbeam, I marketed to software engineers. And uh, the language that you program in does say a lot about the kinds of applications that you build, sort of where in the stack you are. And so I look at those as sort of different types, even though you know a, a developer might learn both or, or move from one to the other. And so um, that tells me a couple of things. Like I think Solidity, um, it, to some degree, like there's an openness there that might bring in sort of full stack engineers, whereas um, Rust has a little bit of a different dynamic from that sense. So when I look at market opportunity, I'm looking at who knows Solidity, who would be a high affinity for wanting to learn Solidity. Maybe they're in a Web2 space. Maybe they want some side projects. Maybe now is the time to like dip your toe in the water since there's um, a much lower entry point if you're going to start uh, testing or playing around with some of these chains. You know, if you want to start a little side project, you have to imagine the fees are lower and whatever you need to buy in at can be a lot lower. And so I look at it from that perspective. And I would also say, I'm also looking at the world, not just by um, like the persona, the type of, of developer that we're, we're going after, but I'm also looking at it by um, use case. And so something that we've talked about anecdotally internally is, okay, well, what if there's a particular use case that is uh, extremely easy to do on Moonbeam, or we see a lot of teams doing on Moonbeam, like how can we develop a playbook where it's easy to find that playbook and it, it contains sort of all of the things that we already have, but in sort of a format that's easy to breeze through. So it's like, here's all the developer documentation that relates to this particular thing. Here's all of the, um, you know, videos. Here's all of the materials you might need. Here's some of the other teams that have already done this if you want to check out their repos. And so those are the things that we're thinking about as well, because when you're, when you're looking at something like search traffic, you're trying to find people who have a problem and know they already have a problem, right? They're kind of actively looking to solve that and you can make educated guesses based on the terms that they're looking for. And so how can we marry kind of the solutions that we see people making with Moonbeam, like these permissionless uh, deployments, how can we like match that with what we're seeing from a search traffic perspective and help kind of create a repeatable playbook that hopefully is easy for people to do. So those are, the, it's a, again, a long winded answer, but those are kind of the two perspectives I come at it from. That's awesome. So we got a question from uh, Blev89. What are some of the big, uh, the next big milestones from, for, for Moonbeam to achieve in your opinion? Um, hmm. So I would say I'm going to flip this around slightly and instead talk about some of the things I'm tracking toward, um, which is slightly different because in terms of like 
predictions and things. I'm not sure I know what the milestones would be or yeah. when or any of those sorts of details. But the things that I'm looking for uh, from a marketing perspective for 2023 would be, you know, increasing brand awareness for Moonbeam. Um, how can we bring more users to Moonbeam? And when I say users, I mean, you know, people who want to use applications that are deployed to Moonbeam. So how can uh, we let people know about those opportunities uh, in some way, or how can we enable the ecosystem to unlock that? And then the third piece is, is governance. And so for folks who are not um, up to speed on this, like Polkadot has been deploying, or I should say Parity. Parity has been deploying this thing called OpenGov or V2. And so it's, it's currently sort of um, live on Kusama getting battle tested uh, and, and presumably soon to come to Polkadot uh, Kusama is the. Go ahead. Kusama is the the canary in the coal mine for yes, Polkadot. Yes, exactly, right? exactly. The, basically, it's the test chain, but it's actually live and and ongoing. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but you know, it's been around since 2019 and is still like actively used. So I think it's funny because most most testnet approaches are um, are short lived, and so this is something yeah. that has very much always been intended to be long lived. But yes, so uh, the similar we have similar dynamics in place uh, for the Moonbeam and Moon River chains. Moon River is uh, the Kusama deployment, and OpenGov is sort of uh, I think there's a discussion going for what the implementation might look like first for Moon River, um, and certainly for anyone who wants to participate in that discussion, um, you know, go to the Moonbeam website. There's a link to the forum there. But um, those kind of three things overall are the are the things that we're focusing on, or the things that I'm focusing on from a marketing perspective. Um, and they're they're very much community led initiatives, right? These are things where the community is sort of at the center and at the heart of it. Um, and I think for for 2023, those are going to be where we put all of our energy. Is you know how can we help the community become more engaged and participate more and take advantage of the technology that is available to us, this open gov um, stuff where they can very directly impact uh, many, many things across, uh, across Moonbeam and Moon River both. That's awesome. So, um, so with, with working in like in a bear market now and and then uh, working in a bull market previously, um, guys like Andre Kranje who uh, Andre Kranje who's on the Phantom Chain developer over there, he said he hates bull markets and loves bear markets. Do you see a big difference of working in the bear market than working in the bull market? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I so I, I started in 2019 and that was very much also a bear. Um, and the okay. dynamics and, and sort of the attention in the ecosystem. So for me, it sort of brings back fundamentals uh, in a lot of ways. But I think for uh, the just some of the differences, of course, are our volume, as well as um, it feels like, you know, when you, you've taken the wind out of your sails, you sort of like slow down a little bit, and then you kind of try and figure out what you want to do next. And yeah. so it's interesting to see... Um, the community react to that because I think there's a little bit of it's when things are crazy, it, everyone just kind of reacts to each other and feeds off each other. But when it starts to slow down, you start to see the pace start to slow down and people are a little more introspective, a little more thoughtful. Um, when they're discovering new projects, they kind of focus on a, a few different elements and, and really dig deeper into some of the projects. So yeah. I think we've seen some interesting commentary from, uh, from a, certainly just Twitter 
And then in terms of, um, you know, our internal dynamics as well, we have more time to, to focus and to, I think, prioritize what uh, we should do from a planning perspective um, internally, right? Like things like um, from a marketing perspective, being able to have some uh, foresight as to uh, campaigns that can get rolled out and, and making sure that especially um, now we want to run campaigns where the whole ecosystem participates. And so yeah. being able to figure out mechanisms to let people know that there is an opportunity that's going to be coming and how to sign up and how to receive information for how they can participate in these campaigns. Those are all things we've always wanted to do, but it's been really tough to execute. And so now we have a little bit more uh, time to take a breath and figure out how to do that so that, you know, yeah. again, we can really kind of tap into this community that's been built and find those who are sort of big believers and uh, want to um, actively participate even, you know, even in the bare circumstances. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So we're going to uh, end this soon. Um, so I, I like to ask everyone, um, uh, you said you're a big reader. Um, what's a, what's a really good book that I, I, I could, I could actually uh, start reading. Oh, I'm going to have <laughs> the dorkiest recommendations. Um, I'm looking behind me to see what I've read recently. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, you're going to hate all my recommendations. <laughs> all right. Well, so the one that I read that I really liked, I guess it was a year or two ago. It was called, yeah. um, it's behind me, Empire on the Edge. Uh, okay. And I really liked it because it's um, sort of, you know, I, I grew up in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. has a very America-centric uh, view of history. And it is yeah. about the Revolutionary War. So it is still very America-centric. Awesome. But it's the lead up to the Revolutionary War and basically all the stuff that was going on in yeah. Great Britain that kept them too occupied to deal with like that little issue over there in the colonies. Yeah. And so from my perspective, it was really, really interesting to just better understand sort of um, what was going on with sort of like the financial situation and, and the tea and uh, yeah. how they've overextended themselves and sort of all these years that had led up to this sort of um, mayhem that occurred uh, yeah. shortly before the American Revolution. I think that's that was a good yeah, that, brain that, exercise to get a different uh, perspective on this. That's really interesting because um, we um, we saw the the Hamilton play. So I actually read the book that leading up to the Hamilton play that he he actually read to get the, the inspiration for the play. And it's basically everything you said. So I'm actually highly interested in in reading it. I'll probably end up reading this this week. It's fortunately shorter than the okay. Hamilton biography. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I don't know, like 500 pages. So it's a little bit breezier, but you better brush up on your um, sort of uh, the English peerage. I think there's sort of okay. a lot of roles and uh, folks and names and things. And so for me, I had to uh, re refresh my memory on some of these people over and over before I could make it through the book, but it is, <laughs> I promise. Awesome. Sounds great. So um, when, when, when you're just, uh, you're, either, you're, you're either working out or, or going to work, what, what kind of music, what, like, what, what music uh, are you listening to? Well, I'm an, uh, I'm more on the indie rock side, unfortunately, okay. unfortunately. So I haven't been listening to probably very much lately. I, uh, I guess head in the heart. I've been listening to a lot. Alabama shakes, okay. um, nothing super current. Cause I haven't yeah. really been listening enough to find new people yet. But yeah. yeah, I would say I'm I'm in the currently like 2010s alt rock phase. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I mainly just listen to pod, podcasts over and over, and I got I, I got to get something else in my brain. So I'll, I'll I, yeah, look, look I usually well. love podcasts, but I haven't been driving anywhere because I've been working from yeah. home for two and a half, three years. So yeah, yeah, I haven't been doing so great on do, the podcast. Do you enjoy working from home? Uh, by and large, it, it, so I have a yeah. three month old at home, so it makes things yeah. a lot easier with him. Oh, sure. uh, but by yeah. and large, yes, uh, I do miss like human interaction from time to time yeah. and also eating yeah. things that aren't prepared in my kitchen. Uh, yeah. Other than that, yeah, yeah. It, it works. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I, I think Niblet's kind of um, zoned out there for a second. I'm not yeah. sure what happened, but uh, I really appreciate you coming on and I learned a lot today and uh, it's amazing. I, I look forward to it coming on again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I love being here. Thank you. Yeah. All thanks. Right. <laughs> All right, guys, that's that's the show. Um, I want to thank uh, Katie. I want to thank Niblets. I want to thank you if you made if you made it through this far. And uh, I, we're now on Spotify, Amazon, and Apple. If you can go give it give a review there and give a like and subscribe for this. And we'll see you guys next week. Um, we're we're, we're not sure yet if we're going to keep doing Sunday nights or we're going to switch to Friday nights because of the football season that's coming. Uh, we can't compete with the. Uh, NFC Championship or the Super Bowl, so we're probably going to switch days for a little while. And uh, just follow follow me on Twitter at shizzy87. I really appreciate again, Katie Niblets. Everyone is watching. I want to. I really like. If, I really want more comments, but uh, I really appreciate uh, Blev89. Thank you for contributing. And if you're watching and uh, going forward, please contribute with a, a comment for Katie or the next guest or whatever. So um, thank you, thank you guys, thank you everyone. I'll see you next week.